Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Wuru, your host, and I'm super excited to have you along with this episode. Wanted to do something special for the trade deadline, and it provided a little bit of a logistical challenge because as it happens on a Thursday, I wanted it to be topical. So this entire episode was recorded and cut in the 12 hours immediately following the trade deadline. So wanted it to be fresh, wanted it to be really crisp takes on everything, and then got a really great group of guests. I was super pleased with the enthusiastic support of everybody who joined in. So I have Shams Trani of Real GM, Andrew Perna of Real GM to talk about the Pacers trade with the Sixers, Rusty Simmons of the San Francisco Chronicle to talk about the Warriors acquiring Steve Blake on Wednesday night, Amin Vafa of Hardwood Paroxysm and Bullets Forever to talk about the trades that Washington and Cleveland made, John Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom to talk about the Kings trade with the Nets, and Erwin Sunichan of Slam to tie it all together and get back into the larger picture. It was a really fun one to record, and start out with Shams Tranye. He's a real GM writer, covers the Midwest, and runs about 17 minutes, and what makes this one really fun is that the news of the Danny Granger for Evan Turner and Lavoy Allen trade breaks during the very beginning of our interview. I tried to cut it very little, so you get something that's probably pretty rare, which is a reaction of two NBA guys to a trade that happens that could have pretty big effects on the league. I think you'll really enjoy it. It was a blast to do. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it, Danny. It might not have been the most eventful trade deadline, but it was definitely an interesting one, and I was wondering what your largest takeaway was from it. It just felt like, you know, a lot of moves, and Danny, just now, uh, I don't know if we're allowed to go off this 
Danny Granger just got traded to the Sixers. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, we can go. I just saw Adrian Wojnarowski break it. Wow. Yeah. That's a that's a really – do we know if they gave up any assets? I have no idea. I just saw it light up on my Twitter feed. Wow. I'm not – that's a – that makes me – wow. Holy – And and you know what's funny about that? A guy who, who I talked about, Danny Granger, earlier today said no chance he'd get traded. Well, that's interesting to see kind of how that works out because the Pacers are, I mean, obviously he, they weren't going to keep him long-term, but it certainly seemed like there was a value to having him the rest of this year. Exactly. I mean, I felt like he really fit in with the second unit bought in. And for the championship-level team, usually you're adding a piece late in the season to bolster you, you know, like the Pistons did in 2004 and other teams have Chris Anderson last year. So he's not as vital as he used to be, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty surprised. Yeah, that'll be fascinating to see how that works out. Also, it'll, in a lot of ways, depending on how it works out, it makes a lot of sense for Philadelphia because they were under the floor anyway. So depending on how it worked out, they got a player who I guess could provide some veteran leadership or however that's going to work. I, that's yeah. incredible. Adrian Wojnarowski is unbelievable, man. Yeah, he is. And it's incredible to see to see how this is going to work out. Let's focus now on, on the other part of the deadline. What was your biggest takeaway? There were a lot of teams that were talking a lot. You know, the Knicks apparently wanted to make a lot of moves, and I know they were shopping Beano as hard as anything, but it, it just came down to the Denver deal with Jordan Hamilton. And then once Jordan Hamilton was straight to the Rockets, they were stuck with Beano. So my biggest takeaway was, you know, a team like the Clippers opening up a roster spot, getting under the, getting close under the luxury tax. And, and a lot of minor moves, obviously, you're aware. And so I, I just felt like there were a lot of big names involved, and just like how it is at every trade deadline, but in the end, it was just teams most trying to work their salary cap room, get assets in terms of draft picks, which are as valuable as ever now, and um, just work on their luxury tax situation. And it really feels like that, in some ways, is the legacy of this CBA, is that part of it is the idea that guys can't be on as many albatross contracts because the, the contract length was severely limited. But also, the shift in the CBA has made picks more valuable, so you're seeing a lot less of those, you know, rotation player for late first-round pick type of trade. A lot of the guys who got traded, they were not traded for their value to the team that they're going to. Haas is probably one of the rare exceptions there. Yeah, I feel that there were a lot of teams that that were also looking to you know open up you know roster spots too more than ever it seems and and Atlanta I know you know they they had a roster spot so they were able to take on Anton Jameson's contract with the injured exception that they got. How do you think of the fit with Haas and the Cavs right now? Is that something that makes sense to you, or do you th- are you having a little trouble piecing it together? I think Cleveland is, is obviously in win now mode. You know they're trying to do whatever they can salvage this season. I know there was a lot of talk about Luol Deng getting traded, but you know all along what I heard is nothing was going to happen. It was, it was unlikely from the start. And with Spencer Hawes, you know it's it's an upgrade. I feel um, just over the big men that they have. Earl Clark is hasn't done much at all since signing his two-year deal in the off-season. Anthony Bennett's playing sparingly most of the season, so I, I think it was an upgrade for them. And they're going to need another big, especially with Anderson Verge out dealing with some back issues right now. So I mean, I, I think it's only going to be an upgrade but giving up assets I mean do you really want to do that when your team not even in the playoffs and meddling and you know you're and even if you do make to the playoffs how far are you really going to get but you know a lot of these owners are putting the mandate on making the playoffs and Cleveland was stuck in one of those positions it's incredible and I'd like to to note also it's fun it'll be fun in real time to go through this but Woj is reporting that Evan Turner is a part of the package for Danny Granger which is very interesting in terms of his fit wow. with the Pacers 
Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable that they could pull this off. I think Evan Turner is an upgrade over Danny Granger at this point in his career. But, you know, I'm just surprised that the Pacers would break up what they had going, even though it's an upgrade. I mean, so you an outsider can look at it and say, you know, an upgrade's an upgrade. You know, I feel like locker room chemistry, unity is, is, is important. I feel like, you know, not many teams, you're not going to give up a big piece, get a big piece. And I haven't seen that many championship contenders. Teams that, that go on to win championships do that kind of move, you know, absolutely change up the locker room like that. I mean, obviously guys are going to have to get used to having Turner now, too. Yeah. I mean, the Pistons did it, but Sheed was a was a much more veteran presence, and also there wasn't as much of the downgrade upgrade questions on the court. You know, he was a huge upgrade, and they basically got him for free. So if it makes your team better, then it's it's a lot easier to argue. But in this situation, while we're still waiting to hear what the pieces are, it doesn't appear to be as much of an upgrade as more of a lateral move, if not a, a dump, depending on what the other pieces involved are. Yeah, and then it's it's interesting to know also both of their contract situations, both of them are going to be free agents. I know Indiana didn't believe that they would resign him, even though they they kept saying that they thought they would. And then how are they going to resign Evan Turner if they thought they weren't going to resign resign Danny Granger? So that that's kind of confusing because Evan Turner is definitely going to command a lot of money in free agency. Um, I know his representatives they're going to be pushing you know the ten million dollar a year mark in terms of negotiations. So it's going to be interesting how how serious the Pacers are about keeping him. That's a good point. So when you're thinking about it in terms of the salary cap, they have the bird rights on him, but his cap hold is going to be big. But at the same time, the Pacers aren't going to be dealing with cap space in the sense that they'll be more negotiating with the tax and everything. But it's a really interesting situation. Uh, moving on to trades that didn't happen, is there anything that you were intrigued by that it looks like we, that we didn't see? I really thought the Clippers would make a broader move. I know they... They made a couple minor moves in, in dealing Byron Mullins and then Antoine Jameson, but I really thought they would make another a sec, a, not a primary move, and that you know they would get someone like Carmelo as it was rumored early in the year, you know stuff like that. But you know a secondary move where they would bring in either a wing player. I know Doc Rivers hasn't been enamored with Jared Dudley at all this season, so you know I, I thought they would bring in another wing player. That's why you saw a lot of those Amon Shumpert rumors. I did expect that, and I'm surprised that that didn't go down. But other than that, you know, it's trade deadlines and trade deadlines. I didn't really think the Rockets were going to shake anything up. By all accounts, the Rockets wanted so much for, for Omar and Sheik that a trade wasn't feasible for any of the teams that were interested. And then, you know, they were dangling some role players like Francisco Garcia, but you know, there's not much of a market for a guy who, who has a player option for next year, and, you know, there's uncertainty there. So I, I think, you know, my main surprise would be the Clippers not adding a wing because I thought they really needed one and they really wanted one. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. The other one for me is the Lakers playing, if you want to call it hardball, to not get under the luxury tax, considering they're playing for absolutely nothing this year and that they didn't structure their moves in any way to, to do that. And there is some speculation that they wanted picks to give up the guys that they were going to give up. But there was really no benefit for them because they're going to be terrible this year. And that's in some ways kind of their goal at this point. And to see a couple teams like that, and I would 
say that's the difference between them and the Clippers because the Clippers are actually good. So I understand them staying slightly over the tack as it looks like they did. But the Lakers situation was really shocking to me because losing Chris Kamen means absolutely nothing to their future. And I'm guessing even the Sixers basically would have been able to get him for free. And that they weren't able to do anything with that is a little bit shocking. Yeah, I was, I was surprised by that too because, you know, it just seemed like the Lakers got greedy in the end. You know, they wanted drafts for Jordan Hill. They wanted some kind of asset coming back, either a future second rounder or something, you know, distant. So it just seemed like they got greedy at the, in the end where, you know, I'm with you. I think if you have a chance to get get under the luxury tax, remove yourself from all the costs that, that come with, the prohibitive costs that come with it, I think you jump at that opportunity. And I think they did have realistic opportunities. For all the reports out there, it seemed like the net were an option, but the Lakers kept requesting for a, some kind of draft choice, and no team was willing in the end, I guess. So I, I just think that the Lakers got greedy, you know. When you have an opportunity to get get out of the luxury tax like that, you just got to let them go, especially the teams that have injury exceptions that they can use. And there were situations, I think, in a lot of ways that the Nets, it seemed like they were playing it well if the Lakers were playing hardball, that they were, you know, they were the Lakers wanted assets back, and the Nets knew that the Lakers didn't really have any interest in, in Jordan Hill being on their team this year, and while they definitely seems like did for next year, that the benefit to them, especially considering how it affects their cap flexibility, that they were in kind of a weird situation with that, and I'm intrigued by their situation, by how they did that, but I also think that it'll be interesting to see how the Steve Blake for Kent Bazemore and Marshawn Brooks trade works out for them just in terms of taking two flyers on kind of random guys that could fit within the D'Antoni system. Yeah, you know, I, and I think that's also holding holding the Lakers back, just the uncertainty with the, with the coaching situation. I know I've, I've read a report that Jordan Hill won't re-sign with the, with the Lakers if D'Antoni's a coach with which actually really startled me, and it seemed like you know he's a guy that that should get you know playing time. And then as for the Steve Blake uh, Kent Bazemore situation, I just thought that you know in a lot of ways it was Golden State trying to right a wrong. Where I think they they kind of realizing uh, I know you read them starting to shop Jordan Crawford today. You know I think they kind of realized they Jordan Crawford's a solid player, but I think for what they wanted, I, I think he's been a disappointment for them so far. They obviously tried to right that situation by getting a veteran point guard who can back up Stephen Curry. And, and someone who, who's reliable, and I think in the end that's what separates him and Jordan Crawford at their at their points in the career. So I think for Gold State it was all about you know righting the wrong for them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And what was kind of shocking about the Jordan Crawford trade when they did it is that the Warriors have had a gaping hole for that primary ball handler when Steph sits, and ideally a guy who can play a little bit with him, which Blake can do. And when they did the Crawford trade, he was definitely better than what they had, but what they lost in that trade was a little bit of salary flexibility because of how everything worked. And it didn't preclude them from making the trade they ended up making, which is pretty much the trade that ideally they would have made originally, but he wasn't on the market then. The Lakers weren't then what they are now. So they got to do that. And it's interesting for me, I think the biggest story of this deadline is how many guys based on reporting were available for a very low cost that still didn't move. And you talked about how the Knicks were shopping Benno. He's a good fit with a lot of teams. And if they were willing to take, you know, a minimum salary guy, unless they saw Jordan Hamilton as a better asset than most of the guys who were available for the minimum, if they didn't want him, there are numerous teams, including the Golden State Warriors, that would have made sense there. So a lot of it depends on, you know, were they looking for a little bit more than than nothing? The same situation with the Kings and Jimmer Fredette and numerous other ones. Guys that could benefit from a change of scenery and the contracts would have been pretty negative but they ended up staying where they were anyway. 
Exactly, and I think a lot of that comes down to what we talked about earlier. You know, with teams are so protective of their draft picks now, more than ever, it seems, because of the new CBA. And, you know, if you find a dime in the rough, a guy in the second round that can contribute, it's so invaluable right now. I mean, you see Lance Stevenson, you know, guys like Lance Stevenson are, are producing at a really high level, and they were second-round picks. That was under the old CBA, I believe. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that teams are looking for, for draft picks to step in with that kind of success because, you know, it's it's really it's, it's remarkable if you can get a, a draft pick like that who can step up because, you know, with, with all the new collective bargaining rules and all that, you're really not paying much. And I think that's why I reported earlier in the week Norris Cole getting a lot of interest from teams. You know, he's a guy on a rookie scout contract this year and next year. Teams view him as, you know, a possible starting caliber guard, and I think that they're just inquiring to see if Miami would trade him because, you know, guys like him are so invaluable right now. And I think a lot, a lot of teams are trying to get to get guys like him. And I think going back to Bino, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of teams could have could have had him. Probably it all it all came down to the Knicks wanting more than they probably deserved in in trading Bino. You know, possibly wanting a second round pick, stuff like that. So I, I do think the teams are really protective over the draft picks right now. That's a definitely an excellent point. Are there any guys that you were surprised that we heard rumors about as them being on the market? Freed. For sure. I know we talked about Freed earlier. I, I, I don't know where it was coming from most of the time, so you can't really be sure if the Nuggets were the, were, were the ones that were shopping him or if it was you know other teams that really wanted him and they were leaking information. But I think, I mean, I, I was really surprised to see all these teams line up interested in Camp Free. It's like, of course, they're in, interested in, in a you know, double-double caliber center, really carved a, a niche in this league for being able to rebound and defend at a really high level. Someone whose motor never goes off. So I think, you know, it's surprising for the Nuggets to even even consider trading him because he's still on a rookie level contract. I guess they have fear that they can that they won't be able to resign him to a contract extension when he's a free agent. But you know, especially, you know, his development the past two years, how he won the M V P of the Rising Stars game last year, you just you you could just see the trend going upward for him him just developing and I thought, you know, the Nuggets should have made a better leap of faith in, in him and making him a guy who's who's as part of the future as a guy like Ty Lawson is. So yeah, I mean I was really surprised to see kind of three out there and I think you know it's been really surprising this year with him getting lower minutes than ever in his career and yet he's averaging the least amount of fouls per game in his whole career. So it seems like they're going in two different directions under Brian Shaw, you know, under George Carr he was able to develop, play freely, get a lot of minutes, but foul trouble was holding him back a little bit. But now it just seems like he's not getting, you know, the playing time, the opportunity that he did under George George Carr. And it's strange to me to see how they not only committed the time, but are committed the money to J.J. Hickson. When Hickson's a fine player, but his potential is substantially lower than Kenneth Freed at this point. And Freed has the benefit of being much cheaper for this season and next season, and then is a restricted free agent. So worst case scenario, he gets an offer that you can't afford, then you just let him go. You don't have to overpay a restricted free agent if you don't want to. And even then, you can see situations where you retain a guy because you can, and then you end up moving him for another asset, which is basically what Ujiri did in order to get JaVale McGee, which hasn't worked out perfectly, but at least you can still get value from it. It's a really strange situation, and I don't know that they intend to play Jan Vesely at all, but that's another guy in that power forward morass of just kind of a guy who can, you know, gobble a couple minutes, but you don't know if you really want him to. It's just a really strange situation in Denver. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, and I think the way Kenneth Reed, the way he plays, it it would seem ideal to what Brian Shaw wants to do. You know, he wants his team to be defensive-minded. He wants him to play with energy. I know he's talked about guys not 
putting forth, you know, the right amount of effort. And I think that's been one of the issues with J.J. Hicks over his career, you know. He disappears sometimes. He's inconsistent. It seems like he's really played well, the, you know, the past two seasons. Obviously, he averaged a double-double last year, and Portland had a big year and then got a big contract. So, I mean, I've been surprised that Hicks has been playing a lot over Kenneth Freed because everything you look at, you know, I know people point to stats and even the eye test. J.J. Hickson isn't a great defender. And in that scenario, you know, Kenneth Freed should have been really able to step in, but he's only averaging 23, 24 minutes a game, whereas opposed to last season where he was averaging around 28 to 29. So, I mean, I've been really surprised at his lack of development this year with the Nuggets. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, what might end up being the big storyline in this is the roster spots that are created, and it's very interesting to think about what Miami's going to do, and also with in light of the Danny Granger situation, it seems entirely possible that he would negotiate a buyout, and considering he can't go back to the Pacers by rule, Miami would be a very interesting destination for him. Yeah, I mean, I think I think any team would be a great destination for him. He brings it on a nightly basis, and I, I mean, I just love the way he plays. So I think any team would be would be glad to have him. That's why you saw a bunch of these reports coming out that this team and that team were interested in him. Yeah. So thanks so much for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, nah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Shams Tranya for coming on. It was incredibly fun to do that, especially with the trade breaking. You can read him on Real GM, and you can follow him on Twitter at Shams Tranya. That's S-H-A-M-S-C-H-A-R-A-N-I-A. Next up is Andrew Perna. I wanted to have him on to talk about the huge Pacers trade of Evan Turner and Lavoy Allen for Danny Granger and what that means for the Pacers in general, and also a little bit of Celtics because he's based in Boston. So wanted to talk about the moves that they didn't make, which I thought was very interesting conversation runs about 11 minutes well thanks so much for coming on not a problem Dan. i wanted to have you on as the real gm pacers aficionado to talk about the evan turner danny granger deal so what was your big takeaway from it aside from the initial takeaway of shock because you know everything leading up to you know 3 p.m deadline was kind of like okay nothing big is gonna happen around the league philly had been asking for a first round pick for a while for turner and there were reports that the pacers had you know put out the feelers for ranger and you know they just weren't getting you know anything substantial offered in return it seemed like you know it was a no-go for turner leaving philly and the pacers doing anything which in reality if you think about it isn't too much of a surprise because i mean it's not too too often that you see a title contender make a significant move at the deadline but i think more than anything the clear takeaway in this deal is you know larry bird in the front office the team they're all in this year they know that the championship windows open and close extremely fast in the nba you know it's not it doesn't this deal doesn't hurt them long term but they are very, very focused and hoping that they'll finally get that NBA title this year. And it definitely sends that message that we're about winning because anything related to sentimentality would be at play here because Granger's the longest-serving Celtic, or not Celtic, Pacer. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's actually something that, you know, uh, you misspoke there real quick about the Celtics, but it's something I admire about Danny Ainge and the way he runs the Celtics is that sentimentality that he kind of puts at the wayside, which I will be the first person to admit that I'm a sentimental person, but in the business of basketball, you really can't be. And in this case, Larry Bird was, in many ways, like cut throw executives in the same way that he was as a player. You know, he's focused on winning that title for Indiana, and he made a move that maybe some GMs wouldn't, maybe a move that doesn't play out too well, you know, when it comes to heartstrings, but it's a move that I think, at the very least, 
Turner is going to give you what Granger was was giving you, which admittedly wasn't too much. Uh, you know, his shot hadn't come around just yet. He seemed to be still working himself back in, and we're talking about a guy who's been playing for two months now. So you think the baseline for what Turner gives, probably what Granger was giving, and then the ceiling is higher. Uh, you know, and you talk about Granger being the longest tenured pacer. I mean, he went through some real crappy times in Indiana. You know, he came after the whole malice and all that stuff, but he was on some teams that were bad, not bad enough to get a high pick, but some teams that were bad, however many straight ninth place finishes there were, not a lot of people attending the games at Conseco and now Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And he basically carried those teams on his back. And you can see from the reaction on Twitter shortly after the deal, while this is clearly a win-now move, do you think that this has to increase the Pacers' chances at least a little bit? The fans, there was some sentimentality there because of what Granger did get to the team. Yeah, and that's the real challenge with a guy who's been on a team for a long time is separating out what he was to the team versus what he is now. And while Granger did have some upside just because he wasn't playing to his full potential, his ceiling, as you mentioned, with both himself and his ceiling on his role with the team, is lower than Turner. Also, the move saved them a pretty substantial amount of money, which, while that doesn't help the fans at all, is kind of a nice thing. Oh, it's absolutely a nice thing. And, I mean, it's a nice thing, too. I think Simon has been a pretty good owner for the Pacers. He has somewhat of a strange policy, I think, of not going after restricted free agents, which is obviously a move that he makes to probably not piss off other owners and other teams. But he's been a good owner for the Pacers over the years. And while you can say, okay, this, this probably helps the Pacers or has a chance to really, really help them take that next step, Savings in the pocket is nice for the ownership. It's a nice move by Bird. And, I mean, that savings is also short-term, you know, because the risk in in moving a piece, quote-unquote, like Granger, is little because, you know, he was coming off the books as unrestricted, and now they take on the two restricted deals, you know, Turner and Allen, which I think adds a a whole new aspect to the deal. Before we get into that, you know, Granger in the last few weeks hasn't looked the best, which you can expect from a guy who played five games last season, who didn't debut until Christmas time this season. He clearly, very clearly, isn't the player that he was when he was scoring 20 points a game for the Pacers. I don't know if it's an accumulation of injuries. I don't know if it's just his knees. He has bad knees, and, you know, they're just he's not going to have that explosiveness. He's not going to have that lift again, but he's just clearly not the same player. And, again, very nice and good, and kudos to Bird to be able to separate Danny Granger the man, Danny Granger the player, because for all intents and purposes, he was a really good soldier about a lot of things that's happened in the past couple of seasons. No one is going to accept a reduced role easily, and he did a pretty decent job of that. I mean, conversations that I've had with some people around the team, Granger and Paul George are represented by the same guy, Aaron Mintz, and come draft time, when the Pacers realized this was maybe somebody they wanted, Granger talked to the front office. He spoke to them and said, you know, this is a guy that, you know, he believed in. He believed in Paul George. And he was, you know, okay. He gave the consent, not that he had to. But for them to take Paul with that 10th pick, and, and now look at what Paul has become. So Granger, if you really want to get sentimental about it, gave it to the Pacers in more ways than just his own play. And you also alluded to a really important point with Evan Turner, which is the possibility, though I would say it's probably unlikely given their situation, that they could retain him because of his status as a restricted free agent as opposed to being an unrestricted free agent. And the other part about that is that people have talked about how big his cap hold is, but cap holds don't matter to the Pacers because they're going to be over it anyway, and that doesn't affect the luxury tax. It's just the amount that he actually ends up getting paid. 
Absolutely, and I think that's something that's you know important. You know, once again, for an owner like Simon, because they, you know, while he's been good to the Patriots, they've never been a team that really grossly, grossly overspent. And the other interesting, I think, thing with that is with Evan Turner being restricted, it allows the possibility for this to be a move that isn't just for the next 29 regular season games and the playoffs. And that is because the whole situation with Lance Stevenson. Now you bring in the possibility of. I think, what could be a bargaining tool for the Pacers when they come and sit down with Stevenson. Because and Stevenson has said multiple times, you know, he loves Indiana. That's all he's professed whenever asked about his future. And now Larry Bird sits down with Stevenson and his agent, and he says, okay, Lance, what are you looking for? And if Lance says, you know, I want an ungodly amount of money, and it's something that maybe the Pacers can afford, but they're not willing to spend on him, Larry says, okay, you know what? Lance, you know, we have Evan Turner in our back pocket. You know, maybe we'll talk with him. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying Lance is, is going to get definitely going to get more than Turner or vice versa, but I think it's a nice little wrinkle to add into what will happen with the Pacers this summer. It makes things a little more interesting, and it gives the Pacers more options, which you know is important even when you are a team that is expected to contend for the next couple of years. And the other chance that, depending on how the salary situations work out, is that there would be the possibility that they could use him in a sign-in trade in a way that was similar to what the Kings got for Tyreek Evans, which is that they just got a small piece as a value just basically for facilitating. And if they could get a Grievous Vasquez basically for free just because they didn't want to pay Evan Turner and they just wanted to, to make it so that it was a clean transition for his next team – they could do that, and if they, especially if it was a cheap asset like they got in that situation, that would be a huge thing. And also, Orlando got Gustavo Aon in a very similar situation because of the Ryan Anderson thing. And so that's another small benefit. So even if the best-case scenario happens with Lance and you don't want to end up retaining Evan Turner, you can get a small thing there, and you wouldn't get that at all for Granger. Absolutely, 100% correct. And that's a great point. I mean, this is a move that I'm, you know, I'm currently finishing up kind of a piece of anyone up on Real GM soon, you know, grading the deal. But, you know, most people are going to focus 99% on the fact that Indiana is all in on this season, which they are, and Turner can hopefully give them, you know, a few shots, uh, create for himself, and just make the bench a little bit better. But like you said, this can very much turn into an asset that they didn't have in Granger. Granger was very much going to walk away. I would have been very surprised if he would have signed, you know, a much more discounted deal. Not that he's going to get a lot, but, you know, signed for a couple million just to stay with the Pacers. So they just twofold. They they made their summer so much interesting. They made it so much, put so much more positivity and so much more chance to add, like you said, a little cheap piece for nothing, basically with, with a sign and trade. And they just opened up options, you know, Lavoie Allen, same thing. So it's definitely interesting. It's definitely something that's definitely a surprise, but they are, you know, gearing up to play in Miami. That's basically all it's come down to. At this point, I was thinking yesterday, I mean, could you imagine if it wasn't Indiana-Miami in the conference finals? Most of Twitter would, would explode, and, and the Eastern Conference just wouldn't be what it could have been. Yeah. I know it's really early, but have you given any thought to what would be a logical destination for Danny Granger if he gets bought out this season? You know, I saw that bounce around, too, that, you know, if, where he could go if he gets bounced around. And, you know, you obviously have to think contender. I don't see much credence to it, but immediately you thought, well, you know, Miami created a roster spot. There's going to be probably a handful of teams that might be interested in taking a flyer on them. You know, if you saw a team take a flyer on Greg Golden, you saw the Pacers take a flyer on Andrew Bynum. Somebody's going to take a flyer on Danny Granger, who doesn't have serious health issues. You know, maybe he's not the player he once was, but... He can knock down a three. He's shooting something like, I think, 33%. He's 
from deep this this season, which was all he was really contributing to the Pacers. I think half of his shots were from deep. He hasn't been quite the shooter he was in past seasons, but, you know, he can make a shot when you need one. And, you know, somebody, I'm sure, will take him. I haven't thought of any particular destinations, but if he does get bought out, he'll land somewhere. I'll, I'll let you go on one quick Boston question, which is, are, I, we're not, we don't need to talk about Rondo, but are you surprised that the Celtics didn't trade Brandon Bass? Yes, I was surprised that they didn't make a move in general. I expected maybe Bass, maybe Jeff Green, maybe even Humphreys. I did not expect Rondo. But, you know, the thing, Bass, I believe, had higher value last year than he does this year. I know some people disagree, especially some of the guys that I talk with around here when I'm at the games. But I think he had a little bit of a higher value last year at this time, and I think Danny may have missed the boat. But, at, you know, at that point, Danny didn't know he was going to be in the predicament he's in. And I am surprised that they didn't do anything. It's, but, you know, Danny probably stood firm. You look at what, you know, Hinky did in Philly. They even wanted the first-round pick for Turner, and he ended up with basically what could amount to, like, the 60th or 59th pick in, in the draft this year or next year or whatever it is. So the value for anybody clearly plummeted because nobody wants to give up a first-round pick. And most people know that that's kind of what Danny wanted. So if he wasn't going to get it, good for him for standing firm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Take care and hope to talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Take care. Thanks again to Andrew for coming on. Loved having his insight. You can read Andrew, Real GM, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Andrew underscore Perna. That's A-N-D-R-E-W underscore P-E-R-N-A. Next up is Rusty Simmons. Rusty is the Warriors beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Known him for years, really like him. And I wanted to have him on to talk about the big Steve Blake trade to the Warriors, which could have some pretty big ramifications on that team and thus the Western Conference playoffs. Our conversation runs about 11 minutes. Hope you like it. Thanks so much, Rusty, for coming on. No, yeah, I appreciate you having me. So the big trade in terms of the Warriors in recent time, obviously there was the one before, is the move with Steve Blake. And I was wondering your kind of general thoughts on it as somebody who's around the team day to day. Yeah, I mean, it sounds terrible because there are people involved, but the Warriors basically gave up nothing. You know, two guys they weren't using to get a player in Steve Blake who should be useful to them. They desperately needed a, a backup point guard all year, somebody who could take some of the ball handling away from Curry and, and take some of that load off of his shoulders, let him play off the ball a little bit. It seems like a, a great move from that perspective. Now, I will say that the Warriors, as people, as players, were really upset last night. It was a, it was an emotional thing for them just because Kent Bazemore has become such a part of that locker room. His, his spirit has, has really embedded himself there. So regardless of whatever he does on the court, he, he was certainly a part of this team. Yeah, and there was a big connection with him. What lingered for me when I was thinking about the trade yesterday was the idea that Bazemore had his chance to earn a spot on this team because when they built the team this summer, they left a gaping hole at the for the primary ball handler when Steph sat, and he had the opportunity to take it, and for whatever reason, whether it be skill or whether it be that he's just not ready yet, he couldn't. So as much as it's an emotional thing, I feel like he did have his chance. It wasn't one of those situations where, oh man, if he had gotten a couple minutes, we could have seen what he could have done. No, I think that's absolutely right. And and he got more than, than one chance. He came into to the summer summer league and then and into training camp as the backup point guard. It was it was his job to lose. Tony Douglas was there, Nemanja Netovich was there, Seth Curry, I guess to a lesser extent was there. But it was Kent Bazemore's job to lose and he, he did lose it. And then Douglas got hurt and Bazemore had another chance. And then Netovich got hurt and Bazemore had another chance. And he just never could quite handle the role. 
And as he lost confidence in his ball handling and point guard skills, it took away the other things that he did well. Uh, he was always a good defender, but all of a sudden, as he lost confidence in, in his point guard skills, he also became a, a lesser defender. And I think that's what was really bothersome to the Warriors. And what's always hard in situations like this, and the Warriors have been through it before with trading Turioff and Azubuki and things like that, is that trading a guy who's more popular than good, let's say, is in some ways a hard proposition because the fans are a little bit disappointed. But the nice thing for them is they got a guy in Steve Blake that when those fans are like, oh, we lost Kent Bazemore, they might be disappointed. But they know Steve Blake. They respect that he's a talent. So you're not going to take that kind of PR hit just to hit with the team, which obviously cannot be discounted. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and and I think this new ownership in front office ha- has proven that, unlike the last regime, who I think a little bit overvalued its players and definitely overvalued how it was going to be viewed by the fans, I think this group doesn't care that much about that. It is worried about the product it's putting on the floor and if that product makes sense, if it's going to mesh together, if it's going to help. And look, Bazemore is a great spirit in the locker room. He he drives the first team in practice. He makes them work hard. He does the pregame chants and dances around and gets everybody excited. But that's nothing compared to what Steve Blake might be able to do for this team on the stretch run for going into the playoffs. And, and I think that the front office and ownership is well aware of that. And the other thing that Steve Blake does, which to me is a lot of the archetype of what you would want in a backup one for the Warriors, is that depending on how they want to use him, and that gets into another question, they have the ability to play him for stretches with Curry. And while I think that Jackson overused that with Jarrett Jack, it is nice to have it as a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I think he he's a he's a great fit because one he can he can play your backup point guard two he can play with Curry as a two and I think he can actually play he's played off the ball a little bit so I think Curry can be the ball handler or Iguodala can be the ball handler even Crawford and and move Blake off the ball when he gets in one of those streaks where where he's not missing from the three point line he can become the guy who's off the ball and the guy shooting so it gives the Warriors more versatility and gives something to the bench which which all season long has just failed to find any consistency. There's been Draymond Green and then a bunch of guys that you didn't know what to expect. I think they're still last in the league in in assists and right down there in in scoring and minutes played. I think 29th in the league in both of those. So Steve Blake should be able to help with all that stuff. Yeah, and that was one of the big storylines for the Warriors that I think in some ways played into the whole idea of the full squad thing, which is that this bench unit, when they all played together, and there are stories on why that shouldn't have happened, they were disastrous offensively. And it makes sense because they didn't have a guy who could run the show, and they also didn't have that hot hand capable guy. And though they could have, you know, used the money in different ways, they ended up getting two bench guys who can get hot at moments and score a bunch of points, and that's substantially better offensively than what they had before that. Yeah, for sure. And and I don't know if if the Warriors want to go back to the hockey line substitution, but now they have a a good second unit. When you think about Steve Blake and Crawford and Harrison Barnes and Draymond Green and Jermaine O'Neal, that's a solid second team. And I don't think the Warriors want to resort back to that thing where they were shifting that whole team in there together, but that gives... Mark Jackson, a lot of options, and and he's got, what, 28 games left to figure out all the pieces, who plays well together, and the main pinnacle thing is to try to win games while you're doing it, but he also has to figure out what he wants to do. Eventually, when you get to the playoffs, you're going to shorten this bench down, and by then, you've got to have your rotations down to exact science of of knowing who plays together and how many minutes each guy is going to get, and that's what he has to figure out over the next 28 games. 
That's huge. And the other part of it is that you and I both know this, especially you with Mark Jackson's history with point guards, is that it's a lot easier for him to sit Curry for extended periods, both within games and on the aggregate, when he has a guy that he trusts. And when you're in a situation where, you know, you might be coaching for your job, possibly, to have a guy who he can use as a safety blanket so that he's not going to feel the pressure that Curry has to play all 24 minutes in the second half, that's a huge benefit for Steph in a lot of ways beyond being able to play with him. Yeah, I think that's right. I think any coach in the, in the NBA tells you that all they want out of their reserves is to know what to expect from them on a night-to-night basis. And other than Draymond Green, Mark Jackson hasn't known what he's going to get from any of his guys. And I think you said it correctly when you said that's even more important when it comes to Jackson when you're talking about a backup point guard. And, and he certainly hasn't known what to expect from that position. And we've seen it from him. He relies heavily on that. He did it with Jared Jack. He even did it with Nate Robinson in the past. When it was a guy that he thought he could rely on, he would go to him heavily. And, and I think that's what Steve Blake is. He's been in the league for 11 years, and he's had a number of doubters. And every time somebody said he can't do something he's proven wrong and stayed in the league and been a, been a solid contributor so I think he's going to show the Warriors that, that he can do whatever they ask him to do and Mark Jackson's going to probably rely pretty heavily on him. And he also fits in really well with the locker room, both in terms of the steady demeanor, but also even to an interesting point with the heavy religious part that is a part of this Warriors fabric as well. Yeah, it was interesting. Last night, Steve Blake gave an interview to to the Lakers media as he was walking out, and he obviously had some mixed emotions. He's got wife and children who are ingrained in the LA community and so he was he was upset a little bit about being traded but the first thing that he tweeted after showing the the media interviews was a, a scripture and it you know just talked about leaving your your trust in the Lord and and knowing that that uh, everything will be taken care of and yeah it reminded me exactly of of what the, of what any of the warriors probably would have done it's it's such a faith-based group that he probably fits right in with the the group we watch him every day before the game 10 or 12 of them get up and march to chapel together and I think that's more than than anybody in the league except for Oklahoma City. So I think he fits with this team on and off the court. And then what they have left is probably a veteran's minimum roster spot is in terms of salary. Is that about right? Yeah, I think they have a little bit more than, than 400000 left before they hit the luxury tax threshold. And so that gives them a chance. Look, this is going to be – the trade deadline got a little bit more interesting when, when the Evan Turner-Danny Granger trade went through. But I actually think there's going to be a ton of guys who get bought out and waived by teams. And there were a bunch of teams, Miami and the Warriors uh, among them, that cleared ro- – the Clippers that cleared roster space to, to – kind of go into this fight now to to go after players who are waived and bought out and I think it's going to create a whole new kind of deadline see what what teams do down the stretch here and and with with four hundred thousand dollars I think the Warriors can find a way to convince somebody to come play for a team who has a shot of making some noise in the playoffs and they also have a huge benefit from being in the, a city that's at least somewhat desirable and the combined teams ahead of them being different because the Knicks and the Nets have so little flexibility and the Lakers are a train wreck for this year at least. So, you know, Miami, obviously, they're at the front of the line. I think that nobody's going to argue that. And the Clippers probably are, too, for most guys because of L.A. and everything else. But there are only a couple of spots for those guys. And so if the Warriors can find somebody who's a good fit for everything else, they could get a guy who's probably maybe not in the top 10 of their rotation, but who could definitely be a valuable piece, especially on a team where injuries have been a major factor this year. I agree. I agree with that entirely. And 
And the Warriors also have positioned themselves as an attractive franchise. I think Bob Myers has such great relationships from his days as an agent, and we saw that play out this summer that, that Dwight Howard actually considered them and that Andre Iguodala begged to come to the Warriors. And I think Mark Jackson is a coach that a lot of the players around the league respect and want to play for. And Stephen Curry, quite frankly, is a, is a, is a player magnet. He's a guy that, that other players want to be around and want to play with. So on top of this being one of the greatest regions in the world, to live in. I think the Warriors have become an attractive franchise for players to go to. And yeah, after after Miami and LA, the Warriors are right there as, as a franchise that could pick up one of those guys. So we'll have to see how that works out, but thank you so much for taking the time. No, I appreciate you having me. Thanks again to Rusty for coming on. Really appreciate having his insight on the Warriors trade and the team at large. You can read him in the San Francisco Chronicle, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Rusty underscore SF Cron. That's R-U-S-T-Y underscore S-F-C-H-R-O-N. Next up is Amin Vafa. Amin is the co-editor-in-chief of Hardwood Paroxysm, which is an ESPN True Hoop blog, and he also is the associate editor for Bullets Forever, which is SB Nation's Washington Wizards blog. So I wanted to have him on to talk about the Wizards and their move for Andre Miller, and as a native Clevelander, I wanted to have him on to talk about that team acquiring Spencer Hawes. So, conversation runs about 17 minutes. Had a blast doing it. Love talking with Amin. Thanks so much to Amin for coming on. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. So, both of your teams, the teams that you most closely identify with, made <laughs> trades. Yep. Uh, let's start with the Wizards. The, in terms of their part of it, they traded Jan Vesely, mm-hmm. Eric Maynard, and yeah. a second-round pick mm-hmm. to return Andre Miller. Yes. What are your thoughts on that on the aggregate? I think it is definitely a good upgrade for them. Basically, they gave up two guys that don't play. Vesely plays very sparingly. Maynard hasn't played in a really long time. And the second-round pick that they got from the Pelicans, I think, uh, a couple years ago for a future second-rounder. So they didn't have their own second-round picks for this year's upcoming draft. And basically, (laughs) they traded away two guys and a future second-round pick that wasn't theirs in the first place to help shore up their backcourt depth a little bit. And they've needed that because Maynard has not been able to contribute the way that they thought he was going to at the beginning of the season. And they bet on Maynard instead of on Shannon Brown and Kendall Marshall earlier in the year. So they were kind of screwed in that way. So they needed someone to contribute. And Andre Miller didn't want to be in Denver anymore. So hopefully he'll find a happy spot in Washington for a little while. And some people wrote after the trade that they were critical of it in the sense that the Nuggets were basically looking to get rid of him. But when you think about that in the context of the Wizards is that they weren't going to probably get him if he was cut, basically, let's say, theoretically, if he got cut, Mm -hmm. they probably weren't going to be the destination. So you need to give something up. And what they gave up wasn't much in terms of the long-term cost to the Wizards. Right. I mean, I think the biggest knock on the Wizards here is the Wizards have a really long history of making trades to fix their own mistakes. And they do that like at every, really every opportunity in the past few years, like there's just been a lot of trading and signing players and whatever. They've just been really, they've obviously screwed up somewhere and they're trying to fix it here. This trade is just kind of underscores the fact Maynard wasn't what they thought he was going to be. I think a lot of people had a lot of red flags on Maynard when he was coming into the into the Wizards just because he hasn't been the same since his injury. He didn't really get a shot to contribute. He did a little bit of a little bit of playing at the beginning of the season when they weren't gelling yet and didn't really make his way into the rotation ever. Vesely has been a really sad project for the Wizards since they drafted him early in the lottery in 2011. His career was just kind of derailed with low minutes 
and a lot of hype early on. And I think that he just was kind of used poorly and he, he worked his way into the rotation a little bit this season, but you know, it's been really up and down for him, mostly down. And I think for him, it's going to be a, for Wesley, particularly, I think being in Denver is going to be a good change of scenery. And Washington was able to pretty much make the best of a bad situation in this regard and get somebody with decent, you know, even though Miller hasn't played in a while, good playoff experience, a veteran with a little bit of experience with Randy Whitman, even, and um, a little bit of, you know, the, the old veteran leadership, I guess, in the backcourt, which will help. Yeah, and so they didn't give up really any salary flexibility because the aggregate wasn't there, and they gained a player who was better than the guys that they gave up. So in that right. context, and also on the Denver side, they shed some salary, and they mm-hmm. well, they lost a pick to do it, but they also got an interesting, if you want to call it a lottery ticket, in Vesely. Right, I mean, Vesely is really interesting to me. Like, There's a lot of people who are down on him, but the people who watch him closely know that he's, he's not a great player. But there are a few things that he did really, really well overseas before he came to the U.S. And there's a few things he can do really, really well consistently in games. And he's a high-energy player. He can run the floor really well. He can break up passes. He does a lot of offensive rebound tap back, which have been called slap bounds when he does them. And whenever a pass is broken up and he's running in transition, he can dunk. He's a terrible free throw shooter. He fouls at a high rate, did a lot of things poorly, but if, if you watched him play, I think it was this past summer in the international tournament, he played for the Czech Republic and he played really well. He was, um, I think he was almost named, before the Czech Republic lost, he was like the favorite to win player of the tournament. He was just playing great basketball and I think his problem is that he didn't get any consistent minutes in Washington because he wasn't contributing well enough and he lost a lot of confidence. So hopefully he gets a chance to shine a little bit in Denver. Yeah, he definitely could. And it's also interesting in the trade in the context of Philadelphia, because while they got picks and various things for the trades that they made, it was interesting that they took on the long-term commitment of Maynard because he has a player option for next year that I think everybody expects him to pick up. Right. Yeah, I mean, Maynard's a little sad. I think people maybe didn't think he was going to be great, because I think people wanted him to play pretty well, not just on the Wizards. I think people wanted him to rebound a little bit. I think based on (laughs) Philly's paper-thin roster after all their trades today, Maynard's going to get plenty of minutes, and, you know, maybe he'll be able to salvage himself a little bit and get back a little bit of what he had before he went down with his injury a couple years ago. Yeah, and they have so little salary on their books that they're not going to spend everything they have, so... At certain points, you might as well just take a shot on somebody and see how it works out. And he's a fine guy to do that with because he definitely has talent, even though he's had a rough couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> Philly is a perfect situation for him. I mean, he wasn't contributing to a team that's going to, you know, probably eke into the back end of the playoffs in the East. Philly is not really good, but they've got a good coach. They have <laughs> a plan, albeit it's a, a burn it down and build it back up kind of plan. And like I said, where they don't have that many guys on their roster right now, and they have, they've got a lot of holes to fill and Maynard is going to play. He's got to do something. So put his feet to the fire and see what he can do. Yeah. To see what Philly does moving forward, because they just have so many pieces that are on non-guaranteed contracts or partially guaranteed contracts. And they have so little core talent, especially now after the Evan Turner trade and the Spencer Haas trade, that they just have minutes of plenty. However, right. it's going to work out. And so they might as well just try a whole bunch of things and see what works. Yep. Yeah, I'm surprised Thad Young didn't wind up getting flipped today. <laughs> They're getting rid of everything, essentially. But Yeah. He 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 might at the at, on the draft night if they can get something for yeah. him once they have a better idea of who they're getting because if they get let's say Embiid or if they get Wiggins then there's still a place for Thaddeus Young but he might conflict a little bit more if they ended up in more of the Jabari Parker 
Julius Randle situation. And he has value because right. he's, his contract isn't bad. You know, it's fine. So you don't need mm-hmm. to move him at any point, but it can be useful at any point. Yeah. Definitely. But we can move on to your other team. Mm. Your other team was also a buyer. Yeah. And they picked up Spencer Hawes. They did for, pick up Spencer Hawes. For basically for Flotsam. Yeah. Because that's what happens when you trade with the Sixers. Exactly. What did you What did you think of that trade for them? So who they gave They gave up Henry Sims and they gave up two Earl second Clark. rounders and Earl Clark for Spencer Hawes. I mean, it's fine. I mean, I don't really see Hawes sticking around. He's a free agent at the end of the season. Apparently, Verjao is injured right now. Some of the Cavs beat writers, I think actually it was Brian Windhorst was tweeting earlier today about he got a cortisone shot in his back. Verjao did. So I think Verjao will probably be out for a little while at least. And, you know, not having Bynum, not having Henry Sims. I mean, he was towards the end of the, the bench, but still having another body a stretch four kind of body that Mike Brown kind of likes, even though Spencer Hawes isn't playing any defense. Put him on the floor, let him do something. The Cavs still have a little bit of a ability to make the playoffs this season. I mean, they're not completely out of the running. They've been playing well. I don't know how much this really messes up their dynamic that much, but Earl Clark played okay for the Cavs at the beginning of the season and then just kind of fell off, and his contract is going to be fine for the Sixers to absorb. Henry Simpson's contract is going to be fine for the Sixers to absorb. I think everyone kind of makes out in this trade. It's not really going to be harmful to the Cavs to have Spencer Hawes from the stretch run of the season. I mean, the Cavs aren't really planning on, once they make the, if they make the playoffs, I don't think they're assuming they're going to go that far in the playoffs. I think it'll wind up being fine for them. And then he expires at the end of the season. They'll have plenty of cap space once he leaves and they'll see, you know, what they can do over the summer. Yeah, and if and if he really likes it there and wants to stick around, then they have the space to bring him back. But if they don't, then no harm, no foul. If you were the Cavs GM right now, or let's say a day ago more accurately, what would you have been thinking in terms of Jared Jack? Jared Jack, I mean, in terms of trying to trade him, I would try to. I think <laughs> they've now that Irving and Waiters are kind of finding their groove a little bit. I, I think Jack was just brought this off season. I mean, you're uh, a Warriors guy, you know. He was brought in. Um, Who's brought to this offseason as kind of like, all right, let's get a little bit of veteran leadership or whatever to give these guys a little, a little bit of a tutor at court. And that didn't really work out that well. The locker room was a kind of in upheaval for a while. He doesn't play that well in the rotation. He's not doing terribly, but I mean, no, I think he actually is doing pretty terribly. But, you know, I think they were trying to toss him. They were trying to trade him for J.J. Barea towards the end of the day, but it kind of fell flat. Not really sure what will wind up happening, but he's got a two-year deal. It's not that, like, toxic for them or anything. I bet they'll try to flip him this summer for something. The Cavs were trying to move Dang again today, and that fell flat too. I'm kind of surprised that I think one of the things that was talked about was they were trying to move him to Phoenix for one of Phoenix's, like, 37 first-round picks, but um, that, you know, Phoenix didn't want to give one up and whatever. Dang is still a good player. He's still a good addition. Cavs need a small forward, and as long as there's no animosity and there's no tension, I think he can still contribute to the success of the team over the course of the season. So if I were the Cavs GM, I think I would have done what I heard they were doing was shopping these two guys and then thinking, you know, you know, we don't necessarily need to beat this to death and get rid of them if the team is gelling right now. We don't want to interrupt it too much. So they got rid of the guys that weren't really contributing to the success of the team over, over this recent span, and I think they'll probably try to revisit a lot of that this summer. Yeah, and the, the really interesting one with them was the rumor of possibly trading Jared Jack for Jason Terry, mm. just because the idea is basically to try to get out of Jared Jack's contract, except that you don't get out of it because he still <laughs> has he still because Jason Terry still has another year. Right. So if there was an offer on the table that to me that would have gotten Jack away for an expiring contract, I think you do mm-hmm. that because two more years at six mil or so is a little bit heavy. But if you're going to basically do a lateral move for Jason Terry, 
then you're going to pretty much retain your value more mm-hmm. with, with Jared Jack because he's one of those guys, especially after his contribution to the Warriors run, that other GMs will want to take a flyer on, especially those guys who, if you want to call it quote-unquote lazier, who are just kind of more <laughs> passive in terms of their scouting. They're like, oh, he did something good. Oh, he's right. a veteran guy. Right. And I think that goes along with the Sacramento Kings, that the Kings will probably have an interest in Jared Jack as long as he's signed, mm-hmm. considering Vivek Ranadive's connection to that Warriors team and the fact that they signed Carl Landry to a ridiculous contract. They're going to do that, and so you're going to have that. And if that offer wasn't on the table at this point, then, you know, Jason Thompson, while he's a better player than some other guys, his contract isn't substantially better. So you're not not really upgrading or downgrading. And Jason Thompson gets thrown into that power forward morass, and maybe he screws with Tristan Thompson's confidence Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, there are potential downsides there. But that's an interesting thing. But overall in the deadline, did you have any big takeaways? I like that it was more active than last year. Last year was kind of a bummer because the past few years had been kind of exciting. I remember the one right before the lockout and the summer before the lockout. There was a lot of activity because people were trying to do a bunch of stuff for various reasons. The one in 2010, it was super active because everyone was trying to clear space to try to sign LeBron over the summer. A million teams were just like getting rid of stuff. And the following year, people were trying to move pieces around because of what they had done the last summer. And then the next year, there was not as much activity because of the lockout. Everybody was on one-year contract. <laughs> because they'd all mm-hmm. played in China or whatever. And so everyone is like on one year free agent contract. So there didn't really need to be that much upheaval because it's like, well, I'll just wait till the summer and pay off this veteran minimum contract and we'll figure it out from there. And the interesting part of that is that you, you talked about the LeBron one and the one after that was also that the, it was leading into amnesty. And that's mm-hmm. what led to the really weird situation where the Cavs got Kyrie Irving mm-hmm. was the Clippers being idiots and not realizing that they were about to be able to get rid of Baron Davis, though obviously Sterling would have had to still pay him. So that's mm-hmm. an issue. Yeah. But they didn't protect the pick enough. And so you got into those situations and, and it was before the new CBA. So teams didn't know how valuable things like picks were going to be. So they were throwing them around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now teams are just super stingy on giving up things that they know have value and for whatever reason they're not willing to swap deck chairs in a situation that could make a lot of sense and there were a lot of situations that that could have been a benefit right yeah i mean today i think there could have been a few more trades that would have benefited some people but you know for whatever reason like maybe there just wasn't time to man the phones maybe some gms don't have a personal relationship with each other's front offices so they don't actually think to pick up the phone and call or you know however it works or just like you know, maybe they were like, okay, they would their plan B, C, D, and E was to wait it out and, and ride it out till the summer and just keep going with what they have. From what I've heard, Phoenix didn't really do much because they because of their surprising work this year. They kind of want to keep the chemistry intact, so that's why they didn't really take a flyer on Dang or anything like that and give up one of their picks. But you know, like a three-way trade, sending a first-round pick to Cleveland or something from Phoenix and sending moving Thad Young and and Dang around and moving between Cleveland. Phoenix and Philly, I think, could have made sense for some parties, but you know, whatever. It didn't happen. I think everyone is. Some parties are satisfied. There's, there. I mean, a lot of teams didn't even do anything today. Enough people did enough today to kind of stay their course or meet their short-term goals. I don't think there's any like game changers today. I think the the Pacers one is probably the closest we can get to being some sort of game change situation because of the fact that Pacers are a contender and they traded one of their mainstays and at least in their locker room and Danny Granger for Lavoie Allen and Evan Turner. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting for them to try to integrate that. But I think if any locker room can do it, it's probably the Pacers. So, yeah, I, I, I had fun following, the, following everything today. It was good. 
Yeah. <laughs> and and the other the other big story to me are the possibilities with the the empty roster spots that are open now with various teams. You know, the Clippers are over the Clippers it appears will have to see some of the math, but it looks like the Clippers are still over the tax. <laughs> so that would mean that they'll probably use their roster spots on guys who could potentially help them. And with the Lakers being a disaster, they are a good destination for that. Mm-hmm. And the Heat adding a roster spot, and it seems like they did that with the intention of getting somebody because if they're basically going to pay to dump a guy that they could have dumped a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. that they're doing it with somebody in mind. I don't know if that's somebody – I'm assuming it wasn't Danny Granger because I doubt they saw that coming, but mm-hmm. it could be now. Right. Unless the, unless the Pacers have agreed with Danny Granger that he's going to be a sleeper agent in the Eastern Conference Finals. Right. But whoever it is, whenever Miami gets a roster spot, that's a story that matters because right. they're a team that can use it, and there are certain teams that have that situation, and that's something to follow as well. And I think a team like San Antonio, I don't think you know. They, I mean, they made a, a minor move with Nando DiColo for Austin Day. Austin Day, yeah. So I mean, San Antonio's had some injury issues this season, and I think they probably want to buy a little bit of insurance. So maybe you know, I don't know if they have any open roster spots, but I could see them experimenting, picking up some players that are left on the waiver wire. And I think what they have a month, right? Everybody has a month left before they can add players before they're ineligible for the playoffs. Is that right? They have a couple weeks. It's March first yeah. is the drop dead deadline. I, I checked it yesterday. Okay. All right. In relation to the Warriors and everybody else, so they have a little bit of time. But we, and we've seen it with the Spurs. You know, they mm-hmm. did that last year. They've done it in years before mm-hmm. of just trying guys out and seeing if it works. Yeah. So and they've tried it out where they cut Stephen Jackson right before the playoffs. So right. You never know. Right. Yeah. So. And- I think people are assuming Granger's going to get bought out in Philly. That seems to be a general assumption. I think Philly wanted the money more than they wanted the player because they didn't want to go below the salary floor and have to compensate in payment for, although I guess that's how it works. If you're below the salary floor, you have to give whatever, you have to give the difference to player salaries or something. Well, so here's how it works. It's actually really, it's good to have this on the podcast, Mm. uh, is that basically what happens is that money gets distributed among the players that are on their roster at the end of the year. Mm. But what's really fun about it is that the allotment is done by the Players Association. And there, as I understand it, there is no rubric because there, uh, you might think, oh, well, you could do it in by just giving everybody an equal portion, Mm. but you could also divvy it by salary as well. And that's a really interesting situation, and so there might actually be a little bit of a beef with certain situations because that can, on a team that has very disparate salaries like they do, let's say Thaddeus Young, that could be a big difference for him of whether mm-hmm. it's done equally or whether it's done more in the in line with salaries. And also the guys that are on the minimum, you know, that money is going to make a much bigger difference for them. Right, right. So. Uh, absolutely. You know, I think if, if Granger does get bought out, I have no idea what the likelihood of that is. I, you know, maybe he will. I don't think he'll wind up going to Miami, but I think going to a, a Western Conference team that needs a little bit of, you know, a little bit of push for the playoffs, maybe San Antonio or Clippers or something. I mean, Clippers need a little more, a few more front court players. So I don't know if Granger would be the best pick up for them but or maybe going to a different eastern conference team that wants to make that push into you know one of those teams that's middling around in that 5 to 11 range who really wants to make sure they make the playoffs this season why not take a flyer yeah, on a reliable guy absolutely well thanks so much for taking time pleasure having you on yeah always a pleasure thanks again to amin for coming on you can read him at the co-editor-in-chief of true hoops hardwood paroxysm and is the associate editor of bullets forever and you can also follow him on Twitter. His handle is AminMBA, which is A-M-I-N-N-B-A. Next up is John Santiago. He writes for Cowbell Kingdom, another True Hoop site. And we wanted to talk about the trade that sent Marcus Thornton to the Brooklyn Nets for Jason Terry and Reggie Evans. Conversation runs about 10 minutes.
So thanks so much for coming on. Hey, no problem. The Kings were in an interesting situation for this deadline because there were the trade that they did make, and then there were a series of rumors and various levels of seriousness of the things that they didn't make. Let's start with what they did. What were your thoughts on Marcus Thornton for Reggie Evans and Jason Terry? I know at uh, first glance it, it just kind of seems like, well, it's kind of trash for trash. And, and realistically, it's not a major deal, but... For them to get rid of Marcus Thornton for a veteran point guard or a guy who can play the point guard in Jason Terry is not a bad deal. That you know they have been looking at Andre Miller, and and now they got Jason Terry. I don't know how much he has left, but again, it's from what we've heard from you know Mike Malone and Pete D'Alessandro thus far, this deal was more about clearing up space for the young guys to continue to play or get more playing time. Guys like Ben McLemore, who has now become the starting shooting guard yet again after the departure of Marcus Thornton, and and Ray McCallum, who really hasn't gotten a chance to play much this season. You know, he spent some time, a few stints in the D-League with the Reno Bighorns, but now it seems like he's going to have an opportunity to maybe be a part of the rotation in the final uh, 28 games of the season for the Sacramento Kings. And that's a really important thing for a team that it looks like they're not going to make the playoffs because you want to know what you have. And I'm a big Ray McCallum fan. I have been for a while now since I wanted UCLA to recruit him and they did, but then he chose to play with his dad. But they're in that situation where you want to have a better idea going into the offseason, especially when they're probably going to have an important draft pick of, is Macklemore the answer? How much money are we willing to pay Isaiah Thomas? Who do we, what, what do we want to do next to Cousins? And to be able to answer those questions in a more direct way is incredibly important, even if you're penciling in Rudy Gay. But if for whatever reason he opts out and the Kings don't re-sign him, then we're talking a whole bunch of different open avenues. Exactly. And another thing, too, there's a little bit of savings that the Kings get by dealing Marcus Thornton for Reggie Evans and, and Jason Terry. So obviously to create some extra wiggle room there, this offseason when you do have Isaiah Thomas facing restricted free agency and you do have the possibility of Rudy Gay opting out of his final year of his contract and testing free agency, you want to be able to have some space to work with. Now, granted, there's the possibility, too, that Jason Terry never plays a game for the Sacramento Kings or that he plays maybe one or two games and then gets bought out conversation uh, with Mike Malone and Pete D'Alessandro, some of those questions were thrown out to them yesterday evening before they played the Golden State Warriors. And uh, it sure does sound like right now they're going to be here, but it's not really a given whether or not Jason Terry or Reggie Evans even get to see any playing time for the Kings. But let's say they do buy out Jason Terry. That's potential savings for them in terms of, you know, their financial situation, which they need to have flexibility for, as I mentioned, this offseason when you have guys like Rudy Gay and and Isaiah Thomas potentially facing free agency. That's very interesting with the buyouts. And also, I'm intrigued by Reggie Evans, because not that the Kings need another high-character power forward. It seems like they have a whole slew of them. But he's a nice guy to have, and I think that he's not paid a ton of money. You know, the financial side of it, he's a much smaller piece, and he's just an interesting player, so he might he might be of use for them if he d- isn't willing to leave a fair amount of money on the table to get bought out. Yeah, that, I don't know. I mean, it, will he play? I'm not sure. I think that there are several <laughs> players who are better than him on this team. I think Jason Thompson's better than him. Carl Landry's better than him. You know, his doppelganger, <laughs> Quincy AC, is is a better version of Reggie Evans. So I don't know if if he'll get a chance to play. But yeah, I mean, last year, the guy per 36 minutes was averaging 16.3 rebounds. 
averaged around 11 per game in 24 minutes per contest for the Nets, and then just kind of fell out of favor in Brooklyn under Jason Kidd under their circumstances. So he could possibly help, but again, will he play? We don't know. Will Jason Terry play? We don't know, but Having those guys in there, I think, is going to help. Obviously, Jason Terry has experience, championship experience, playoff experience. In fact, I think Mike Malone brought up the other night that Jason Terry has more playoff experience than this Kings roster combined. And he has a relationship with Isaiah Thomas, both of those guys being uh, from the Pacific Northwest. So it's not bad to have guys like that in your locker room who've been there and done that and have the experience that a lot of these guys in this Kings locker room don't have thus far in their careers. It's an excellent point. The other part, and I alluded to this in the the intro, is that the Kings also had really fascinating potential in trades that didn't happen. And to me, that starts with Jimmer Fredette. What did you hear about that, and were you surprised that he wasn't moved? Yeah, I mean, it's... It sounded a lot like the Kings wanted to deal Jimmer for debt or their asking price for Jimmer for debt was basically just a second round pick and they couldn't do it. And think about, look at Philadelphia, how many second round picks did they acquire at the trade deadline? I think it was like 10 or something like that. So, you know, the fact that they weren't able to get even a second round pick for Jimmer Fredette maybe tells you or is indicative of his value right now in the NBA, which is pretty sad. I think Jimmer Fredette is an NBA player. You know, you don't associate elite with Jimmer Fredette in the NBA, but I will say this on record that Jimmer Fredette does have one elite skill, and that is his three-point shooting. He's not a great defender, but he is a very good shooter. He's a pretty decent playmaker, and in the right situation, I think he can help. I mean, we just saw last week, this is a guy who lit up the Knicks for 24 points off the bench in Madison Square Garden. He is a guy who can shoot the ball and can help out a team. I thought that maybe Denver might be a play for him. You know, even when the rumors with, with Andre Miller were coming up, you know, the possibility of swapping uh, Jimmer and, and maybe Travis Outlaw for for Andre Miller and another filler were maybe uh, something that could have been could have been done, but that did not happen because Andre Miller went to the Washington Wizards. But, you know, Jimmer Fredette did not get traded, and that was a little bit surprising to me. Jason Thompson, another guy who was rumored to be out there, rumors about him maybe being traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers for Jared Jack, that did not happen. And realistically, right now, it, maybe it's because Jason Thompson's contract is a little too long, but maybe next year it becomes more movable the fewer the years that remain on the deal that he uh, he signed last summer uh, with the Kings. And also with Jason Thompson, he could show a little bit more in terms of playing if he can get more reliable playing time. Obviously, Carl Landry being in the mix changes that. But if he can show these flashes, or maybe even for comparing it to Jimmer, if he can pop one of those 20-point games or something like that, or a, a double-double, 15-10 and 10 or something, closer to maybe the next deadline, or maybe even in the end of the year so that a team would be interested in him as drafting and free agency kicks in and more teams have space. But yeah, it's surprising with the Kings also, because with Jimmer, because it seems incredibly unlikely that he is a King next year. So if anybody would offer anything, it seemed like a good value play for them. Yeah, Jim. Jimmer is, Jimmer is in a tough spot, a weird spot, I'd say, because he is going to be an unrestricted free agent. So unlike Isaiah Thomas, he doesn't have to worry about the Kings matching any offer sheet that he signs with a team this offseason. He's, he's pretty much free to go wherever he wants, and he'll have his choice. But the tough thing is, what kind of value will he have going into free agency? Because as I mentioned, a guy like Ray McCallum may start to see extended minutes here, and that may come at the expense of Jimmer. We may not be seeing Jimmer for debt play as much here the remainder of the season. So going into the offseason, 
that's not going to bode well for his agent and his representation when they're trying to sell teams on on his ability and his talent when he's you know when the numbers and the stats are going to show that he wasn't playing much to close out the year. But yeah, we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens with Jason Thompson as well. He is a guy who I think has been a consummate professional. He's the longest tenured Sacramento King. He's been here for six years. A crazy stat for you, Danny. He's he's been here for six years and he's played with 65 different teammates played under four different head coaches and has had to deal with the threat of relocation two different times. I mean, this is a guy who's dealt with a lot in his career and has always come out and acted like a pro. And, you know, unfortunately, with the contract that he has, I think it steered some people away from him or some teams away from him. Maybe if he were getting paid a little bit less, he'd be a little more attractive. But he is a guy who can help out a team in the right situation. It's just a matter of certain team biting. And, uh, and and we'll see if that happens at any point. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thanks again to John Santiago for coming on. Really appreciate him taking the time. He writes for Cowbell Kingdom, which is part of ESPN's True Hoop Network. And you can also follow him on Twitter at It's John Santiago. And that's I-T-S-J-O-N-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O. Finally, we have... Erwin Sunichan, who writes for Slam Magazine, and he and I go all over the place. We talk about a lot of the big trades that happened. I wanted to have him on to summarize everything and to hit all those points and also to get into some of the broader CBA questions that dictated this really interesting trade deadline. Conversation runs about 20 minutes. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, happy to be here. So talking, well, it doesn't have to be in the big picture, but what were your bigger takeaways from today? My biggest takeaway from today is just how much the new collective bargaining agreement has changed the NBA. It is so hard for teams to make moves now that it it has changed the nature of the trade deadline. It's hard to make a big trade. Teams are very, very afraid of going over the cap. The penalties have gotten pretty crazy. And I'm also realizing that it's going to be hard to keep teams together because of how stiff those penalties are. So, for instance, you look at the Indiana Pacers, they – they got Evan Turner today. I don't think they're going to resign Evan Turner, which is what a lot of folks are saying. I don't think they're going to be able to resign Lance Stevenson either. I think they're going to lose them both. But I think what they did today is a sign that they don't think they're going to have the same team together next year. They can't afford that luxury tax in that market. And so they're just going to come to the playoffs loaded for bear, and they just went out and got the made the best move they possibly could. They'll figure out a way to use Evan Turner. If he gives them a few minutes in a playoff game, great. But that that's really what it boils down to. So the new CBA has really changed the NBA. And the other thing that it's done is it's changed the nature of bad contracts because now the, what were referred to for years as albatross contracts aren't as long. You know, as much as people talk about the Josh Smith contract, it might be one of the worst ones on the books right now. I would say Joe Johnson's is worse, but, you know, there are a lot of them in that range. And even then, it's not as bad as they used to be because it's, you know, it's a, it's a four-year deal. It's not that catastrophic. So you aren't seeing this purging as necessary as it was in previous CBAs. I agree. I agree that that, that is another positive change. For me, though, I, I mean, it's, it's still, with the higher penalty, it's still a pretty big albatross. So you're, you're going from five years to four. It's still a pretty big albatross. I would love to see them lower the max contract line, and that would force these salaries, some of these, kind of upper mid-range deals even lower and create a stronger middle class, which, not to sound too progressive, I, I think it's a good thing. And that would keep teams from kind of tripping over themselves. And the players at the max level should be getting a lot of endorsement money anyway. But that's just, I'll get off my soapbox. 
<laughs> I actually would prefer to go the opposite way, which it's funny because they would each have dramatically different effects. And one of those would be under your system, it would be more likely that higher end guys would play together and under mine, they would be less. And you can argue that both ways. I mean, they're. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I want to see more good players playing together. I am missing a front line of Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale and Larry Bird. I didn't root for them. But to have three guys that good in one front line, and you had an all-star in Dennis Johnson in the backcourt who had been a championship series MVP and an all-star, I, I mean, I loved that. I loved watching that. I loved watching Kareem and Magic and Worthy on the same team. and They still had money for A.C. Green and Byron Scott and Michael Cooper and on and on down the line. And even Bob McAdoo was there as a backup center for a while who was also a Hall of Famer. I loved those days, and I would love to see teams able to do that again and I thought it made the game more fun. So I'm okay with having three All-Stars on one team. I think that teams being good and knowing he's going to be on a team for five years is a good thing. The other really fascinating storyline to me about this deadline was teams that lowered their luxury tax bill without eliminating it entirely. The Lakers and the Clippers, depending on what they had wanted to do, both could have, by weakening their teams, and for the Lakers, obviously that doesn't matter, and for the Clippers it does, they could have made it so that they had no luxury tax bill at all. And they both lowered it for, through various moves, but that's a big change too, that you know, we would see teams like what the Bulls did, where the Bulls ducked out of it. And we've seen teams do that at various points over the last CBA and the present one. But this idea of we're still going to be paying money, we just want to pay less, is a very interesting thing to me. When you've got a four for one, I mean, if you're a repeater, a repeat offender, it's it's like a four point something for one. So the Nets are going to pay, I don't know, 60 some odd million in luxury tax. It adds up pretty quick. So I, I don't blame the Lakers for what they did. And, and I think the Lakers tried to lower it even more. It was just hard to find trading partners this year in particular. And then with the Clippers, I, all I can say is I feel bad for Antoine because he, he so wanted to be in the playoffs this year. I hope he gets a buyout and he goes somewhere good. He deserves it. We had oh, him here Atlanta's, oh. He was always very nice to be around. Atlanta's going to make the playoffs, but I think you're right in the more the contender vein. But there are places that he could fit. Incidentally, if they were willing to do it, he would be an interesting fit as a stretch four for Oklahoma City, but his defense is a little bit shaky now. I don't remember a time when Antoine's defense wasn't shaky. Fair I point. You know what you're getting. I would actually love to see him come back to the Warriors and be part of this team's playoff run. Maybe, I don't know if I'm being sentimental or if, if it could actually help. He might, it might help them to have another score, and they do need another player who can finish around the rim. And if nothing else, Antoine will be able to do that until he can't walk. That's a good point. The other kind of interesting thing to me with the deadline was the idea that not many teams made those trades of just kind of guys that weren't working super well. We saw a little bit of that with the Aaron Brooks, Jordan Hamilton trade, and then we saw it with the Nando DeColo, Austin Day trade. But there were kind of, it seemed to me, too few of those. However, I did like the ones that we saw. I agree. And you did see playoff teams filling needs. I mean, Aaron Brooks was even though he was you know, playing at an all-star level, I think, three, four years ago, he was a third stringer on the Rockets. And they got a guy who's an, kind of an athletic wing, and they needed a player like that. So they, they just took what they had too much of and traded it for what they didn't have enough of. And it was fair logic. So all this kind of spare parts for spare parts, when you're talking about playoff teams, they're pretty serious. And even the Spurs, the Spurs needed a stretch four. And Popovich loves having these guys like Danny Ferry, who, you know, just kind of stands out there. He's 6'11", nobody's going to block, and he shoots threes. And he got his floor spacing that way with Ferry and with Robert Ori. And now he's going to get it from Austin Day, who's a pretty good three-point shooter. Boston Day works out. So that to me, that trade made sense, too. And then you look at DiColo, 
and they've got Joseph and they've got Parker and they've got Eddie Mills. So they were kind of loaded in the backcourt, and that made sense to me too. Yeah, and those those little smart moves I think are a really important part of what can keep teams like that feisty and interesting. And the other big change with a lot of it is is the nature of the buyouts, and we're going to see some interesting stuff. To me, the the other big storyline of the day beyond the Granger trade, and that could also impact it, is the idea of Miami deliberately creating another roster spot. I love that. And it point. will be very interesting because I think we can all agree that of the teams that are going to have spots available, they are the most intriguing to every guy who's getting bought out with the idea of going to a contender. It, it's and pretty that's going to be fun. Yeah, it's pretty funny when you talk to NBA players and, and they say, well, boy, I, I would look great playing next to LeBron. Well, you know what, Danny? I would look great playing next to LeBron. So would you. I, but everybody kind of thinks that way. And, you know, Chris Bosh and Dwayne White. So, yeah, I, I think that that's a natural landing spot. They also possibly reduce their luxury tax fees a little bit, which uh, they, they run a pretty tight ship over there. They don't like to pay the tax too much. It's not like a net situation where they don't care how much they go over. So it made sense for them all around. I like what they did, and I, I like that they're keeping a spot open for somebody. Yeah, and they're going to be in a really fascinating situation with Arison. I mean, he definitely deserves credit for me, and I, I give him this for being willing to spend when the team is good enough to do it. But what's going to be really fascinating with the Heat is that when, and it is a when, not an if, this group breaks up, whether that be this year, whether that be three years from now, whatever, how long it takes for them to retool, because if they don't have the recruiter in Wade, will it be easy because they've had so much success, or will it be harder because they're not going to have as many of those pieces? Well, this is way off in the future, and, and, and it, it will be harder. I don't think anybody in the NBA is that sentimental that they're going to look at it and say, well, they used to be good when they had LeBron James. That would be like telling people they should go to Cleveland because they were in the conference final three years ago. I, I don't, well, but ago. Miami, Miami does have the benefit, though, of being a very desirable place to live. And I think as long as they have Riley and Spolstra, that they'll have that institutional thing. So well, I, they have, yeah. We're looking so far in the future, though. I mean, Pat Riley's getting up in years. Eric Spolstra might want to go to another winning team a lot and be the next Phil Jackson. LeBron could be there. LeBron might not be there. It's so speculative. All I know is that between now and three years from now, we might have three more Miami championships, potentially. The thing I'm really interested in is to see how Dwayne Wade kind of goes through this next part of his career, because he's really the he's the question mark in their big three. I, I think everybody feels pretty good that Chris Bosh and, and LeBron James will be there. Yeah, and I think that in terms of especially on the court, that what they what those guys do, and they're phenomenal players, and with Wade, it can vary so much, and it can vary with him being on or off the court. And what I think about is when the Heat played the Warriors, after the game, Chris Bosh was in the locker room, and he said, we didn't know until we were in the huddle right before the game started when Spolstra said, oh, Dwayne's not playing tonight. And that Ideally, it won't happen in the playoffs. Obviously, we're all, as basketball fans, we're all hoping that that, that that cleans itself up. But that's a very different thing for players. And it's a bigger question mark, I think, than some people have, have really let on because also his game changes a lot based on his health. It does change a lot based on his health. The Heat, by the way, are very fortunate that they have Ray Allen. And you can go to Ray Allen at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, Ray, we're starting in five minutes, and he'll be on. He'll, he'll shoot the ball. I thought he'd for what he is now in his career, did a pretty good job against the Warriors for a guy who didn't know he was starting until five minutes before the game. That said, and Shane Batty did a nice job filling in, too, as always. But that is a lot of uncertainty around the Heat, and it'll be really interesting to see how they want to handle the Wade contract situation moving forward. And, and do they have the chutzpah, for lack of a better term, to 
ask this guy who's going to be, I, I think, a first ballot Hall of Famer to take a pay cut because they're not sure that he can handle the load anymore of, of a Mets player. And it seems pretty likely that he will pick up at least the first of his option years because his value is not even – his value could be higher 12 months from now than it is now in that context. But, yeah, it's a really complicated and hard and emotionally difficult situation for teams with a guy that has played that long with the same team as well. And and that same thing is, is there for paralleling it with what the Celtics did with Paul Pierce and what the Lakers did with Kobe. I think the Lakers pretty much flunked that test. <laughs> I think the uh, I think the Heat are probably going to get it right because Pat Riley and his whole front office are pretty smart. I think I think they'll sort it out. Now the the Celtics took the slash and burn path, which didn't make them any friends. But you know, eventually Paul Pierce's name is going to be hanging from the rafters, and everything will be fine. And they did a nice job welcoming him back when they came, and I thought that was yeah. a good touch, and that was obviously completely necessary considering what he gave to the franchise completely appropriate and it's always nice to see teams do that i remember here in uh, golden state they had a donald foil for 10 years he went ended up in uh, orlando and the first time he came back they had a video of all his highlights and a standing note whenever somebody puts in 10 years with a franchise i think that's the right way to approach it. it it is hard to say goodbye to players like that you know even at the backup center level let alone or Danny Ferry in Cleveland is another example of kind of a backup who spent 10 years. And then Kobe, I understand why they didn't want to say goodbye, but man, that's just, that's a terrible contract. And it's going to put them in a really complicated situation with guys like Kevin Love, because let's say Love wants to go there. The pitch the Lakers have to give to Kevin is, okay, you're going to have to get the next guy because they're not going to have the ability to do it. Cause if they're signing Kevin, then and they're not trading Kobe, he has a no-trade clause, then they don't really have the resources. So then what you're saying is, okay, assuming Kobe retires at the end of that next year, so that'll be going into 2016, then you're going to have to get Kevin Durant, Al Horford, whoever it's going to be, to come here because otherwise you might be playing by yourself, which is pretty much what's happening in Minnesota right now. Yeah, you can be part of our rebuilding process. Congratulations, at least it'll be warmer. Yeah, and that's, that, I think that was hard for Dwight. Dwight was sitting in this situation, and I honestly think that they might have given Dwight an indication of where they were going with that, and that might have been a part of the motivation for him to leave. Well, is that, that if he knew they were going to give Kobe 25, then, I mean, why was he going to stay? Yeah, that and, and yeah, there were, there were a few reasons. They had a lot of instability in their organization, coaching instability. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge Dwight Howard fan, but I understand why he didn't want to be there. Yeah, I understand it completely, too. Anything else from the deadline that really stood out to you? Uh, oh, and by the way, being a center on a Kobe Bryant team is not easy. Oh, but, no, absolutely. Make make no mistake there, Dwight Howard is not the first person to have walked that path to find out that there was not enough room for a center's ego around Kobe. And to make it even broader, another guy who wants the ball a lot. You know, as much yeah. as Pau Gasol has has worked out relatively well, he's basically, in a lot of ways, the best possible guy who's good with the ball in his hands but doesn't demand it all the time, and there's been plenty of friction there. There's been a lot of friction there, and you can also get him the ball a lot of different ways. It's not like Shaq where he's going to back somebody down, and then you've got to set up the, you know, the post play, and you've got to make the pass in, and it, it's a little bit different. And so he was probably the one guy who could do it, and and they knew that when they acquired him with that incredible trade, however they made it. Anyway, trade deadline. Let's talk about this year's trade deadline. What else stood out to you? Anything else that stood out either with the move that did happen or in some ways just as notably a move that did not? Well, it, like I said, it's so hard to make moves now. 
I like what the Warriors did. I like getting Steve Blake. I, I like the fact that, first of all, they needed a guard who could play with Steph Curry when Clay Thompson isn't in, and a guard who could take some pressure off Steph Curry. And I think they've learned that Jordan Crawford is a really nice backup. He's done a nice job coming off the bench as a point guard. And he, he pushes the pace a little bit. He can get to the rim a little bit, which they really needed. They needed somebody other than Harrison Barnes in their second unit to get to the rim. That's Jordan Crawford. But Steve Blake can play with Steph Curry. He can play off Steph Curry. So he can come in and handle the ball and take some pressure off Steph. Or Steph can handle, and then when he breaks down the defense, or when, you know, when David Lee breaks down the defense, there's Steve Blake out on the perimeter who's been shooting about 40% from three, you know, give or take a point or two for the last, I don't know how many years, six, seven, eight years. He's, so he's a perfect fit, and he's battle-tested. He's playoff-tested. He, he's not going to get too high or too low. He's a good fit for that locker room. He brings a little bit of intensity. I like him on a lot of levels. Not a whole lot defensively, but, you know, they, they can absorb that. If, as long as Andrew Bogut is on the court, they can absorb that. And he also fits in well with the locker room, which is – always a nice thing. It's I wouldn't say it's necessarily a mandatory requirement, but it helps. You know what? It is a mandatory requirement for these Warriors. They do not acquire tough cases anymore. They just don't. They really haven't acquired players with questionable reputations a whole lot since the Latrell Sprewell incident, if you, if you really go back and look at it. I think they felt that Jordan Crawford was a minor risk, but that the locker room would kind of absorb whatever tension he brings and would and being in that environment would help him, and it has. He, he seems to really like it and but, yeah, long story short, I think that uh, Steve Blake does fit in well, but, and it's very intentional. They are not going to take a risk with this locker room. To me, the most interesting moves that didn't happen all centered on one team, and that's the Knicks, because yeah. the Knicks are in a situation where I think everybody can see that they're having problems. And yet, as of now, it looks like they're going to keep everything the same. Well, their problem is named Mr. Dolan. He's their owner. I mean, you look at the Knicks, and they've been so bad for so long, and I, I'm a New York guy. I don't like that the Knicks have been terrible since Patrick Ewing was in his prime, basically. I mean, they they might have had one or two good years in there, but they have, they've been bad for a long time. And I think a lot of these rumors around the Knicks start out of wishful thinking. The New York media needs something to write about. Sure, they called, I don't know, somebody about a Mont Shumpert, or maybe they're going to acquire a fill-in-the-blank all-star, but they weren't really ever going to. The Knicks don't have any assets. Yeah, they, they really don't. don't. I mean, Amon Shumpert, he's still, he's still potential. He hasn't, he hasn't done that much. And the only player they could have moved that would have gotten everybody to stand up and pay attention is Carmelo Anthony. And maybe someone would have jumped at, at Tyson Chandler. But they, that's not a whole lot to work with. And They're, especially with Melo, Melo fits in in a strange way with the new breed of general managers. And also what we've seen is a very clear risk aversion to guys that are on expiring contracts. You know, obviously you get the benefit of that they're not going to be on the books, but we saw it with Luol Deng, we saw it with Pau Gasol, of why should I rent a player who I have no special advantage to retain them, or even in many circumstances to get assets if they leave? Because in the old CBA, you could at least get get a big trade exception, or you could get some a pick or something because you could pay the guy more money. In the current CBA, as long as the other team has cap space, you're probably going to get nothing. It would have to be the unusual situation where you think that this is your year. And if I give up you know, a first-round pick and, and some matching contracts to get Pau Gasol or whoever, then I could take out the heat. And I, I think it's fine for a team to go all in. Nobody did this year. But actually, the thing that surprised me most was that Phoenix didn't do anything because Phoenix has a lot of assets. They have, I think they have four first-round picks this year, first of all. Two are going to be probably in the lottery, and two are going to be in the 20s somewhere. So they have all these picks. They certainly are not going to want four rookies 
four rookie first-round picks on their team next year, so they're going to have to cut at least one of these picks loose somehow, some way, somewhere along the line. They had a lot of players who teams might have been interested in, so they could have really added to their team, and they talked about it. They talked about giving Coach Hornacek a, a piece for the playoff run, maybe maybe another big man. There were a lot of scenarios discussed, and they didn't do anything, and, and I was really disappointed by that. Yeah, that definitely would have been an interesting thing. And they're a team that had both the financial flexibility and the direct incentives in terms of the extra revenue. And because missing the playoffs and making the playoffs is going to mean something very different to a team like that than some other teams, especially with all their young talent. It would have meant a lot to that team. They they might yet make the playoffs if they can hold off Memphis and not fall too far behind the Warriors. But fundamentally, they had an opportunity. And now this summer, they're going to have to give away one of those picks in kind of a fire sale. Because like I said, I, I just think it's unlikely they'll keep all the picks. What this may have come down to is that their ownership is pretty cheap. Robert Sarver is not, does not like to spend money. And even, even if it was a move that kept them under the luxury tax, which wouldn't have been that hard to do, he might have looked at it and said, well, you just took on $2 million. That, that, that would be taking on $2 million of salary. I'm not sure I want to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's going to be – they're a hard team to figure out because I really like watching them, but it feels like they do need something else. And their GM must have a lot of faith that he's going to nail these draft picks and that they're going to they're going to really make it happen. Well, I think you're going to either see him bundle two draft picks for a higher one or have, have to move a dra- uh, one of these first and take a couple seconds back. Those are both definitely possible. Both definitely possible. But you're right, though. He's going to have to do a lot with these picks. But even if these picks pan out, there's no guarantee that Phoenix will resign them. Phoenix, to me, is, it was a weird team because their ownership always picks competent GMs. They always seem to have good management in place. They often have good coaches in place. Even historically, you look back, and they had Dick Mata for all those years. They, they always seem to have good coaching in Phoenix. They had Paul Westfall when Westfall was still a viable NBA coach and before everybody knew his playbook. They ha- they've had some really good coaches there. They had Mike D'Antoni in his prime, they've, and they have good GMs. They make nice personnel decisions. Steve Kerr made some nice decisions, too. But they're never willing to spend the money to put the team over the top. There's always hope, but there's never kind of the consummation of that. It's an excellent point. It'll be it'll be interesting to see if they can buck that trend, and I'm openly skeptical because of Sarver and because as somebody who lives on the West Coast, I've seen what can happen to that team. But I'm really hopeful because I love what they have together, and I'm a huge fan of Hornacek. He is going to be a very good coach for somebody. It might be Phoenix. He might not want to move. It's hard to say. But you're right. I, I think he's going to be in the NBA for a long time. It'd be interesting to see if he went back to his other former team and was coaching the Jazz in a couple of years. That wouldn't surprise me because Ty Corbin has had a struggle there. The two rookie coaches who I've been, I think, most excited about this year are Hornacek and Brad Stevens. Stevens has been fabulous. I think that he's going to be in an interesting place because obviously the team's going to end up with a bad record this year, but I've been impressed with the job that he's done. And watching Jordan Crawford when he was on the Celtics and watching him when he was on the Warriors, he looks like a different player. And I I covered it a little bit when he was on the Wizards before that. And when you see a guy play better than he's played anywhere else, one of the first things I think of is that means that he was in the right coach, right system, whatever, right surrounding talent. And I give a little bit of a bump to everybody who's involved in that. And I think Stevens deserves that for him. Solid organization. And the thing about Stevens, too, is that his teams always play hard and they're always prepared. And with a losing team, it's very, very hard, as we know all too well in Golden State. When a team knows that it's only going to win 30 some odd games, it is very hard to get them to come out prepared every night and to also get them to give that kind of effort every night. And the Celtics somehow do it. I don't know I don't know how he's doing it, but he's definitely doing it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you. Oh, thanks, Danny. Anytime. My pleasure. Yeah.
Thanks again to Erwin Sunichan for coming on. You can read him in Slam Magazine. To summarize all the guests, they have Shams Trani of Real GM, Andrew Perna of Real GM, Rusty Simmons of the San Francisco Chronicle, Amin Vafa of Hardwood Paroxysm and Bullets Forever, John Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom, and again, Erwin Sunichan of Slam. I deeply appreciate all of them taking the time. Obviously, the trade deadline is a busy day for us, and particularly for many of those people who are in the beat writer vein and had a lot of material to put out yesterday. So for them to take some time to talk with me and share their insights with you was much appreciated. Also, thank you so much for listening. It was a really, really fun one to do. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And if you have any insight to make the show better, I'm always looking for it. Appreciate it. You can hit me up on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can email me. My email is Daniel.LaRue at RealGM.com. And your insight makes the show better. Looking to do a lot of interesting things in the coming weeks now that the deadline is done. So happy to have your insights. Appreciate you listening. Want to make the experience better. So thank you. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 